Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 44, and we continue to travel about the Zufeld and beyond with Englishman John Barrow. He had arrived in Grafreinet with Landros Bresler, and their entry into the Muddendorp village marked the restoration of Cape Control after an interval of two and a half years, and that was late 1797. Because they were accompanied by a small group of Dragoon Light Cavalry, the message was clear, authority is back. But the Trek Boers, and particularly the giant Kunrad, the base, were in no mood to hear that message. The eastern frontier of the Cape Colony in 1797 was a confused and distracted region. War with the San and the cause had been followed by the Boers' own revolution, and then the British had arrived. The turmoil of these events had been compounded by the Khorza civil war, which led to the settlers becoming involved in their internal bickering. And Slambe's followers were now moving about inside the Zutfeld, that area between the Kai River and the Sundays River. Remember the secession issue which had broken out, and the fact that Kauta of the Kaleka had installed Nika as the new regent instead of Ndimbu. After a short, sharp war, Ntlambi was seized by Nika and put under house arrest, and Nika's triumph over Ntlambi was an astonishing reversal. Ntlambi now was between 55 and 60 years of age, and had been outthought and outfought by his young nephew, who was barely 18, and yet Ntlambi was by no means finished. He was to renew his influence on events, and it is by him that we can cross from the previous Amatkoza history into the more strongly defined landscape of modern Koza history. Ntlambe, as Noel Mostad writes, is a kind of bridge between the misty figures of oral history in the early 1700s to the clearly recorded written history from the end of the 18th century. And it's the lives of two young monarchs who will determine the modern history of the Koza, Inglika and Hinsa, and their sons. One important consequence of the Khoza War and the war against the Trek Boers was that it seemed to draw a permanent line along the Kai River between the Tlaleka and the Rarabi and other Khoza living in the west, closer to the colonists. Before 1795, the great places of the Rarabi and Tlaleka were to be found between the Fish River and the Kai Rivers. After their defeat by Nika, the Tlaleka seemed disposed to remain east of the Kai, which became an undeclared boundary between themselves and other Khoza, as well as the Khoi and the Trekpoors. Of course, this river did nothing to stop them from providing assistance clandestinely during the following century of colonial wars. The delineation exists to this day, and was used during apartheid to create two Khoza homelands, or Bantustans, one called the Siskai and the other the Transkai, but more about that much later. Right now we're with the bright young thing called John Barrow as he ox-wagoned around the eastern frontier. It was with the civil war in mind that we join him as he approached Inglika's great place near the Kaiskama River in August 1797. Barrow was immediately impressed by Inglika. Remember, Barrow had just spent some time in China, which he regarded as a corrupt and terminally degenerated empire of people who seemed inbred as royalty. So Barrow was taken by the young chief, enraptured, in fact. Only a man of the Enlightenment could celebrate the possibilities of humankind as he gazed upon the great place and he gushed. There is perhaps no nation on earth taken collectively that produces so fine a race of man as the Khoza, he wrote. They are tall, stout, muscular, well-made, elegant figures. They are exempt indeed from many of those causes that, in more civilized societies, contribute to impede the growth of the body. Their diet was simple, he said. Exercise, part of their salutary nature, their body neither cramped nor encumbered by clothing. The air they breathe is pure. 
He viewed their relationships, which he only vaguely understood, as positive. Their rest is not disturbed by violent love, nor their minds ruffled by jealousy. They are free from those licentious appetites, which proceed more frequently more from a depraved imagination than a real natural want. They did not drink intoxicating liquors, merely beer. They ate when they were hungry and slept when nature demanded. They seemed to be always cheerful. I mean, who wouldn't be considering Barrow's description? It was clearly tainted by his bias about what is regarded as the noble savage enlightenment thinking, but it was also brilliantly simple in its analysis. These people were very different from the Khoikhoi and San, for example. It's something we've heard about already. Social structures and systems were advanced. These were people who were smelting metals and building large towns, led by quixotic or chaotic rulers such as Nthlambe and Nguika, and advanced people. Barrow regarded them as a better finished people than the Chinese, although he was pretty biased against those eastern peoples. The Chinese, he said, were a useless civilization. More time was spent on their internal machinations than an attempt at learning about the world, whereas the Koza lifestyle was all about traveling around and getting to know what was beyond the next mountain. Barrow warned those who travel in Kozaland that these people may have been less polished than some nations, but they were not inferior in any way. So Barrow watched Nguika ride up to the English party on his favorite ox. Then they all sat down under a mimosa tree to parley. The young Englishman explained that he'd come to seek assurance from Nguika on various matters. He wanted a promise that the Rarabi would not cross the Fish River into the colony on any pretense whatever. Furthermore, the Makosa were to avoid trade at all costs with the Boers. Any colonists hiding in Koza land should be sent back to Graf Renet. Any escaped slaves, whether Khoi or mixed race, should be sent back. Furthermore, Nika should send a message of peace and friendship to the other Koza chieftains of the Zutfeld and ask them to cross back to Koza land and leave the region. Now, this last request was pretty much impossible, as we've heard, because no Koza king so far had been able to keep the people west of the Kai under any sort of control for any length of time. Nika, however, agreed to all terms, except for the idea of arresting colonists and sending them back to Graf Reinet, saying that they were Christians but promised to give intelligence to the Landrost should any be met within his territories. Just to show good faith, John Barrow then hauled out his gifts of sheets of copper, brass wire, glass beads, knives for skinning animals, looking glasses, flints, steel and tinderboxes. And watching all of this in turn was Nguika's mother, Queen Nojoli. Her influence must not be underestimated as she was fully involved in these negotiations and the diplomacy because Barrow gave her exactly the same gifts he gave Nguika. Within a year of his visit, the trick boy Konrad the base would be living at Inrika's great place, married to Queen Najoli, and exerting an influence on both her and her son. Bass, as we've seen, had a long relationship with the causes on the frontier. His familiarity goes back some time. Both the Bass and Queen Najoli were well above average size. The Bass was almost seven foot tall and large of girth, while Queen Najoli, we've heard already, was uh, grossly corpulent. De Base had married more than half a dozen Khoi Khoi or mixed-race women, so ending up married to the queen mother of the Amakosa was not a big step for this big boer. Inrika agreed to Barrow's other requests and convinced the young Englishman of the success of his mission. 
There was to be satisfaction back at Government House in Cape Town, where Lady Anne Barnard was to write enthusiastically of this success to Henry Dundas back in London. Mr. Barrow writes in raptures of Causerland and of the King, a young man of twenty who is pleased with his visit and glad to treat on terms of friendship with us. The English had treated the Causer King just as the Dutch governor van Plettenberg had done twenty years earlier when he made his boundary agreements with the Amandange, Amangwali, and the Amantinde. This, however, was a dangerously simplistic diplomatic approach, and the VOC had never learned its lesson. The British, I'm afraid, were on the same false highway. Nika, as you see, was like previous chiefs. He may have been young and clever, but he still did not control all Koza people. He merely controlled his own. So Nika could not return the white colonists to Graf Renet if they pitched up in his territory. That was their job, he said, and he could not force the Kunukwebe and Amambalu to leave the Zurfeld. The latter was beyond his control, and as Kunrad the base was to prove, the former he just wasn't prepared to undertake, and in fact set up his own mother's relationship with the giant Boer as a kind of intelligence coup. The base, of course, was not alone. There were other Boers who'd stayed at the Tolza King's great place, as was their custom. The British, like the VOC, were far enough away not to realise this at first. They needed meat from the frontier for their garrison and passing ships, so demanded stability on the frontier. They had no wish to fight a war on behalf of the Trekboers and Graf Renet, whom the British actually despised, calling them Jacobins, supporters of the French Revolution. Meanwhile, back in Cape Town, the English view of the Cape was beginning to change. General Craig told Lady Anne before he left that the peninsula was, in his view, the worst nautical situation it was possible for the devil himself to contrive. So much for the Cape of Good Hope. There were too few safe harbours around the coastline. Not only that, but Lady Anne went on to say something that was profoundly true. For, as the colony improved and its peoples increased, he thought it would, to us, only prove a second America, and would more likely in time to rob us of India than to secure it for us. Craig clearly had had enough of the fairest Cape, for he also claimed that the hens do not lay fresh eggs, so vile was every animal that inhabited the place. While the lady and the governor McCartney shared notes with Barrow, back on the eastern frontier, Nika did in fact try to make an effort to persuade the Zutfeld Amatkoza to cross to the eastern bank of the Fish River. He offered them part of his country and liberty to elect their own chief independent of him. They rejected this idea, maintaining that the Sunday's river was their boundary, much further south saying this was the river that constituted the limits between the colonists and the Tosa. And there were thousands of people who were part of this belief system, and their descendants would end up living in what became known as the Siskai later. So what of this area? By 1797, Tungwa, who had succeeded his father Chaka as chief of the Kunukwebe, refused point-blank to leave the Zufeld, and in fact insisted he'd never speak about the idea ever again. Apart from his group and the Amambalu, the territory also contained those of Ntlambe's people who had fled from Nika's control and who eventually were joined by Ntlambe himself. The reality was all these chieftains were quite ready to accept Ntlambe as their monarch should he manage to escape Nika's clutches. It so happened that Nika was also reappraising what the English were up to, and as he did so, he sought Boer advice. 
and of course waiting like a giant bearded cause in the wings was Boer Kunrad the base. During discussions, Nguka told the base that the British could not buy him off with the trifles they'd brought, a few trinkets really, but the Kosa were a shrewd and observant people, and when they did not fully understand the situation, they would become equivocal. The British thought that Arabi king was in agreement, but he had merely agreed to help in a few specific aims. The actual ownership of land and structure of their social networks were once again completely missed by the colonists except for the Boers, who were equally shrewd and observant and equivocal. Inglika called on Kunrad the base to explain what these English were. They may also be pale of skin, but were clearly very different to the Boers, said the Tkosa king. Indeed, is what the base appears to have said. Furthermore, he began to describe who the English were in a manner which was designed to turn Inglika completely against them. Imagine, said de Base, that the entire Dutch East India colony between the Cape and the Fish River was one big farm. The Cape was the main cattle kraal. Cape Town was its great place in which its chief lived. The English had just arrived and seized this great place from the Dutch and now controlled the entire farm all the way to the fish. Furthermore, winked de Base, the English did not come from a proper place. No, they were like the bushmen of the sea, as he put it. Now the Amatkosa hated the sand in the way that the Boers hated the sand. Both regarded these first peoples as bandits and robbers, as predators. Nothing could more completely disparage the name of Englishmen in the conceptions of the Kosa, wrote Liechtenstein the Traveller a little later. The idea of traitors and robbers was indissolubly associated with it. Back in Cape Town, Lord McCartney was a martyr to gout and advancing years and returned from his post as first English governor of the Cape after a single year. He was replaced on the 22nd November 1798 by Major General Francis Dundas. The new acting governor was honest, efficient and by all accounts a complete twat. His choleric temperament and overbearing demeanour meant he lacked tact. Where Lady Anne Barnard, Lord McCartney and John Barrow had tried to endear themselves to the Dutch farmers of the towns of the Cape, Dundas was different. It was made worse for this lackey of the empire because everyone knew he was acting governor, meaning he was actually in a weak position. That meant he'd spend a great deal of time trying to prove how he was in control. You know those people, overbearing, dim-witted, prone to bullying, despised and speared in the back as quickly as possible by the simpering sidekicks. They are the corporate middle managers or state workers promoted above their intellectual and emotional intelligence grade and given a degree of power which they immediately abuse. The Dunder stopgap was not going to end well. He was there awaiting the designated governor, Sir George Young, and did not command the same respect amongst the burghers of the old Lord McCartney. Dundas had other problems. The number of English troops at his disposal was reduced as the French Revolutionary Wars were impinging on the affairs of the Cape. As McCartney dragged his ageing carcass off the African continent, three veteran British regiments left the Cape at the same time, heading for Madras and the Fourth Anglo-Mysore War of 1798-1799. That was against Tupu Sultan of Mysore, who was an Indian ally of the French. To make matters worse, on 23rd November 1798, a massive fire broke out in Cape Town, which killed 130 cavalry horses. It also destroyed most of the naval and military stores. A few weeks later, 
there was a short-lived naval mutiny at Simonstown. Sitting at the great place far away on the eastern frontier, Kunrad the base and his Boer rebel friends received messages about these sudden disasters and the troops' withdrawal. These men believed the British government was effectively put out of action. The frontier farmers were a rough and lawless lot, harsh to the Khoikhoi servants and labourers, harsh to the British-imposed Landros. Into this gap strode the giant de Beus, massively self-confident, irrepressible troublemaker. The quintessential trans-frontiers man, as he's called, who'd left settler society and flouted its norms immediately by marrying coy and black women, ignoring the laws, hard living on a hard land. He'd already had seven children with a coy woman in the Zutfeld, but he wasn't always on good terms with anyone else. We've heard how the Amarkoza of the Zutfeld targeted his farm for special attention during the Second Frontier War and raised it to the ground. All he could do after this was work as a gun runner, so predictably it was this prominent giant of a man who led the Graf Renet Rebellion of 1795. The base had already shacked up with Queen Najoli when the next moves were afoot. For Koza and Boer alike, their familiar world was turning like the century itself towards an end and a beginning. In South Africa, as in Europe and further afield, there was a strong and wary impression of change and difference in the offing. For the Koza, a third unknown and mysterious power had arrived on the frontier to confuse things further. Regardless of what these frontier people and the English thought, the British arrival indicated an end of the frontier Boers' isolation. For almost a century, the people who'd moved away from the Cape had chosen to live a remote and wild existence, steadily drifting away from the law. But an extremely capable authority had now caught up with them, and this law was waving a different flag, wearing a different uniform, and speaking a different language. Britain prided itself on an organized colonial administration. The Boers prided themselves on independence and an almost anarchic social pattern. The British were contemptuous of the Boers, which was to be their biggest mistake, and they'd make this mistake repeatedly over the next 150 years. Kundrad the base understood this moment probably better than most around him. Among other things, he symbolizes the beginning of Boer rancor and hatred against the British. It was now in this fateful epoch of South African history that this long-running blood battle would begin in earnest. De Beuys hated the British and was the first real Boer antagonist of the British in South Africa. And for his sins, McCartney put a price on his head before the old lord staggered on board ship and headed back to his beloved England, never to set foot in Africa again. More changes were afoot as the turn of the century approached, and another frontier war was imminent. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It increases the visibility of the series. If you have any comments, you can contact me via my website, desmondlatham.com, or direct message me on Twitter, at deslatham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.